July 23, 1983. Air Canada Flight 143, a four-month-old Boeing 767, is cruising at 41,000 feet, about halfway through a routine flight from Montreal to Edmonton over Canada. On board are 61 passengers and eight crew members. Without warning, an alarm goes off, alerting the crew to low fuel pressure at one of the fuel pumps. Seconds later, another warning goes off, indicating low fuel pressure at another pump. 700 miles away from Edmonton, the crew decides to divert to Winnipeg, which is 120 miles away, in order to try and figure out the source of the problem. The warnings continue to spread as fuel pumps and the two engines shut down. The instruments all go dark as Air Canada Flight 143 loses power and is out of fuel at 41,000 feet. Welcome to Black Box Down. All right, everyone, welcome. This is the first episode of Black Box Down, our uh, podcast about aviation incidents. Uh, I'm Gus, and I'm joined with Chris. Hello. Uh, I want to welcome everyone and uh, let remind you that uh, you should subscribe to this podcast and make sure you give us a good rating on whatever platform you consume podcasts on. Recommend it to your friends if you enjoy what we're about to get into. Hopefully yeah. you do. Yeah. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. So uh, Fueled is- up. I just ate pizza. You did. I saw I- you eat a pizza. So uh, I'm super fascinated with the aviation industry and uh, I've always had a fascination with, uh, with the process. And that's why I think it's, it's interesting when things go wrong. I'm always curious to know what happened and how the industry learned and evolved from it. So it's always been kind of a passion of mine. So I'm happy we're actually doing this podcast and Chris, uh, Chris wanted to be part of it. So I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I was thinking about the, uh, last night was, I you know, I've been on planes my whole life. But every, well, well, thanks for landing for us. <laughs> yeah. But every single person, the first couple times you get on a plane is afraid. Mm-hmm. I feel, you know, like I remember that first, like probably five or six times I was just like tense because mm-hmm. you just assume something's going to go wrong. Well, I think it's the loss of control, right? Like, and plus the fact you're seven miles above the earth. Yeah. So it's like if something goes wrong, like people are familiar with driving and your car breaking down, your car breaks down, you pull over to the side of the road. Your plane breaks down. One, you're a passenger. You can't do anything. <laughs> Two, it's not like you can just pull over to the side uh, the side of the sky. Yeah. And it's like until it becomes a routine thing that you just don't think about, mm-hmm. which takes a while. I mean, it's, it, it is terrifying. It's a, again, I, I can't stress this enough. It's a super, it's the safest form of transportation available. And uh, I think that's what interests me when there are incidents. You know, everything has evolved over all these decades that airlines have been flying to make it so safe that uh, when something does go wrong, it's, I'm I'm really curious to know why. Yeah, and and you know we're going to cover a bunch of different incidents over the course of uh, this podcast, and uh, it, it seems like every incident, it's something different. There's a different thing to learn. Yeah. So in this case, this is uh, this is an unusual one. They're all unusual. This one stands out in my mind. This is uh, Air Canada 143. It's referred to commonly as the Gimli glider, for reasons we'll get to eventually. So wait, the plane is or or the this flight? This flight. This incident. Any. Gimli, as yeah. in Lord of the Rings Gimli. Yes, <laughs> but that's not the reason, but we'll, we'll get to that okay. down the road. Uh, I fear this is a good one that would, uh, that would interest you. So this flight was a Boeing 767 uh, in 1983. The captain was uh, Captain Robert Pearson. He had 15,000 flight hours, very uh, established pilot. And his first officer was Maurice Quintal, who had uh, 7,000 flight hours. He's flying over Canada at cruising altitude and ran out of fuel. Initially, the, the pilots aren't sure what's going on. Uh, the warning light for low pressure at a fuel pump goes off, which not terrible. You know, gravity will continue to feed the fuel uh-huh. to the engine, but then the the errors continue to spread. There's multiple fuel pumps on the plane, so they slowly all begin shutting down, and eventually the end result is both engines shut down because there's no more fuel. Is it a long flight? 
the flight path, it was across Canada. I want to say it was about 1,500 miles that they were flying. And they were almost, they were almost exactly halfway through. They were 800 miles through so, that journey at this time. So it definitely wasn't like, oh, we're almost there. We're almost. No, no. Out of no they, they, are, um, they are just past the halfway mark. So someone either fucked up and didn't fuel it or something came loose. Right. right? And, and, and in the moment, I think the pilots don't care what caused the problem. <laughs> you know, in the moment, they have to, to deal with it. I think, you know, there is some troubleshooting involved. They're uh-huh. going to try to figure out what happens. And in this particular case, you know, they, they start going through their checklist. There's a long checklist when things happen. And at first, they just, you know, like I said, they assumed the fuel pump had failed, turned it off. Like I said, gravity would continue to feed fuel to the engine while they're flying. But, uh, you know, after they turned it off, another alarm went off, indicating a problem on the other side of the plane. And uh, the way this, this plane carries fuel is there's uh, a fuel tank in each wing, mm-hmm. and there's a fuel tank in the body of the plane as well. They only really use the center fuel tank for long trips. So they most likely only had fuel in the wings on this particular flight. But, uh, you know, like I said, the alarms continue to go off, and uh, the engine shut down. And, and, and in reading through the, uh, the report about this, the pilots say that, they heard a long bong noise that they had never heard before, which is the plane indicating that both engines are now off. And uh, whenever it shut down, right? Not sh- like beforehand. No, no. It's like the engines have shut down. It's like <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to equate it to. Like, like bong. The plane is now off. <laughs> they have a noise for it. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the scary thing is, so you know, this is 1983. The 767 was still a really new plane. This pl- this particular plane was only about four months old. Mm-hmm. And uh, Previously, cockpit crews had been three people, a pilot, a co-pilot, and a flight engineer. So the 767 was, you know, the beginning of like a modern era in aviation where computers had taken over the position of flight engineer. So there was no flight engineer. So like all of their computers went blank. There's no information to be fed. There's no like, it's almost like if they had a flight engineer and then he disappeared, you know, yeah, all all that information's gone. It's just off. Right. It's all off. Because it's all powered by the engines. So the, yeah, so there's not even electricity, like an, a generator. It's it's. Well, what happens is it, um, that's a really good question. So there is some battery power mm-hmm. that'll run the uh, the instruments for a little while, but uh, what happens is in this case, planes have what they call a rat. Mm-hmm. It's a, a ram air turbine. It's like a, think of like a little fan. Well, it's like a little propeller actually, that pops out from the bottom of the plane, and the the velocity of the wind hitting it causes the propeller to spin, okay. and it's like a windmill. So yeah, it creates yeah. a little bit of power. So uh, the rat is, uh, generates a little bit of power in order to uh, to power up some of the instruments. So mm-hmm. they don't have full control. I think the, the rat's really interesting. Uh, if you're listening to this, you should Google, <laughs> look up what a rat looks like. It's, it's, it's really weird because you never see this, right? Yeah, so just Google rat on Google <laughs> Images and see what happens. Aer- Google airplane rat, maybe. Uh, so the rat pops out like pretty quickly in just a couple of seconds, and... Uh, I believe on the 767, they need uh, a, speed, a minimum speed of about 130 knots uh, for the rat to operate. So obviously, you know, they were cruising fa- 130 knots is about 149 miles an hour. Okay. So, so they, they were going fast enough for this. And that speed varies, you know, plane to plane. So the rat pops out and this, so they get a little bit, some, some of their instruments back, but obviously very limited. And they're just cruising at this point, right? right? So they're not like, when they run out of power, it's not like they just flop down into the ground. Right. It's just like... Yeah, slowly descending, right? right? They're, they're slowing down and losing altitude. Can, if, if without power like that, I mean, is it, can they just kind of glide down? Uh, to an extent, yeah. So when a plane is flying, there's four basic forces that act on a uh-huh. plane. There's the thrust from the engine uh, and then the drag from the air. So those two kind of 
go against each other. Yeah. There's uh, gravity pulling the plane down and lift from wind going over the wings, pushing the plane up. So since they lose thrust, then gravity and drag begin to slow the plane down. But there's still lift being generated by the wing. They just can't climb, for example. If they try to climb, they'll lose speed and stall. So when the right engine shut down, uh, they obviously they knew something was wrong. So they decided that they were going to divert to Winnipeg and they had started descending to go to Winnipeg. Uh-huh. And when they hit about 35,000 feet, uh, that's when the other engine uh, went out. So they had no, no engines at all. And, uh, you know, they're going through the checklist. That's a big thing in aviation, the emergency checklist. So, uh, you know, obviously when one engine goes down, they start looking at the checklist like, okay, we're going to do a one engine landing in uh-huh. Winnipeg. Both engines go down and they go through their checklist and they find there's no section on how to land a plane with no engines, right? Like it's it's just not there. Check the book. Uh, <laughs> it's dark in here. There's nothing in the book. But luckily, are, are they in the dark? Well, it was daytime. Well, okay. if, it, if it was night, yeah, they yeah. Uh, it, they would have some illumination from the ramp, but it wouldn't be very yeah. much. So, w- just real quick, from the the perspective of the people in the plane, something and there's a boom noise, a bong a bong. Well, they noise. wouldn't have heard that. That's, a, that's okay. in the cockpit. Okay. Yeah. And then do they? Do the stewardess or anyone announce like, hey, we're going to go to go Winnipeg instead? Uh, <laughs> they, they do, actually. Okay. So initially when one engine goes out, the um, the flight attendant or the, the the flight crew, the flight attendants come on and say, you know, we're going to be diverting a mechanical issue. We're going to be diverting to Winnipeg. So so the people in the plane, they're like, oh, something's up. And then then they at this point, they're like, they know something is wrong. Right. Well, imagine you're on a plane. Uh-huh. The engines are loud when they're on. Uh-huh. Imagine if you don't <laughs> hear that anymore. You're, there's, there's no way to really hide that. Oh. So then at that point, the flight crew, you know, starts telling people that we're going to you're going to have to brace and going over that procedure to tell people to prepare for uh, um, they probably don't call it a crash landing, just pro- pro- an emergency landing for, for a bumpy ride. Yeah. So luckily, like you asked earlier, um, you know, if the plane glides, it just so happened that the captain for this flight, which was uh, Captain Pearson, he was uh, an experienced glider pilot. That's that's just the, a glider pilot is a like a plane that you just get in and just kind of glide off a mountain? Right. It, they can be towed. So like a plane might tow a glider up into the air uh-huh. and then release them, and the glider just kind of floats on thermal currents coming off of the, wow. the earth. So, um, so he, you know, he had some skills with flying gliders. and Not that a plane is the same as a glider and he shouldn't be able to do this. So the first step he had to do was he had to figure out what his optimum glide speed was in order to try to get as much distance as he can out of the plane. Uh-huh. So... Um, he, obviously, it's not in the book. He has to take a guess. He guesses that it's about 220 knots. And uh, he had to kind of start trying to figure out how much altitude they were losing versus how much distance they were covering. So he's in contact with air traffic control. And at this point, is he trying to get to Winnipeg or just... Yeah, they're still, try- still trying to get to Winnipeg. They're still trying to get to Winnipeg. But okay. at this point, they're trying to figure out what their glide ratio is. Okay. And uh, as part of a side effect of them losing power... Uh, you know, like I said, the rat came on, but the rat does not power the transponder. And the transponder is a piece of equipment that tells air traffic control where the plane is. So the transponder goes off. Air traffic control doesn't have an exact way to, to measure where, where they, they are. are. They have to use like an old-fashioned radar system to try to... Okay, but they can still communicate. Yeah, with, okay. you still communicate. So Rat's good for something. Rat's good for a few things. <laughs> so air traffic control is telling them what their location is, how far they're moving. The crew's estimating, you know, uh, they have an analog altitude indicator... They're estimating how far they're or how quickly they're following. And they estimate that over 10 nautical miles, they lose about 5,000 feet of altitude. So it gives them a glide ratio of about 12 to 1. So roughly for every 12 miles they go in distance, they go one mile down. That's not that bad. Right. So if they're at 35,000 feet, they might get 
60 miles. Okay. Am I doing that math right? 74 miles. That's that's pretty good. 84 I, miles. Okay. Well, See, look how hard this is. I'm yeah, not even trying to fly a plane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying I, I'm struggling well, to figure it out. It's still good math in your head. Yeah. Uh, but like that's that's a lot honestly a lot more than I would have imagined mm-hmm. a plane could go with no power right. other than the rat. And he's guessing. Okay. <laughs> and he, he's guessing at this. So, uh they're they're doing their calculations and as they're, you know, they're, like I said, they're still going towards Winnipeg. Uh, uh, first officer Quintal uh, calculates that they're going to be about 15 miles short. Oh. They're not going to quite make it to okay. Winnipeg. So uh, he proposes that they uh, that they divert and that they uh, that they land somewhere else. And so they know that there's it just so happened that the first officer uh, is a former Air Force pilot uh, in the Canadian Air Force, and he knows that there's an Air Force base not too far away that's closer than Winnipeg. He's he man he he's the right dude. Right. <laughs> you he's got, like all right, guys. I know <laughs> I fly planes all the time without power. And well, this, this is the first officer who's suggesting this. So it's not the pilot. Oh, uh, but okay. uh, so they know that there's a, an, Air, uh, an Air Force, a decommissioned Air Force base nearby. The downside is there's no emergency vehicles there because it's decommissioned. Yeah. Okay. So they like they wanted to try to get to Winnipeg where there's emergency vehicles. So if they crash land, they can get help quickly. But they know they're not going to make it. So they divert to uh, what used to be Gimli Air Base. Oh, uh, they uh, named an airbase off Lord of the Rings? They, I, I, I don't think so. I don't know the history of Ghibli Airbase, but I'm going to guess it's not based on the name of a fictional dwarf. Wow. But what they didn't know was that the part of the base had been converted into a motorsports park, like a racetrack. Oh. And there was a race going on. At the, well, oh. the, the, a race had just ended. <laughs> Wait. And it was family day. So it's full of families so and it's kids. Full, full of families and... who are there for a race. And oh, the, man. Ru- the runway is being used... To stage the race. Oh, this is like a great. This is like a great movie right now. They're like they're coming up on the airport. Like, wait a second, are those <laughs> people. <laughs> Chris, you have no idea how crazy this is about to get. Okay, so uh, they divert. They know they can get to Gimli. Mm-hmm. So they they're not going to make it to Winnipeg. They divert. They turn uh, to their right, I believe, and head over towards Gimli. And uh, since as part of the not having power, they don't have hydraulics either. So portions of the plane aren't working. They can't use the hydraulics to lower the landing gear. So they do what's called a gravity drop, right? They, they can uh, let the landing gear loose and hope because, because they're heavy, like they'll fall into uh-huh. place and they'll lock into place. So the, the, the main gear under the body of the plane, super heavy. It falls and locks, no problem. One problem is that their nose gear isn't as heavy. It doesn't lock into place. So it drops, but it's not locked into position. Okay, and the, the little wheels. Right, exactly. So they have... They're big wheels. How many wheels are we talking about then do they so have? So there's, there's a lot of wheels, but there's two underbody assemblies uh-huh. that drop and then the one under the nose. Okay, so they're, they're topsy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So like I said, again, they don't have hydraulics, so they're not able to deploy their flaps, which allows them to maintain control, allows them to, to uh, maneuver the plane at a lower speed. And uh, they're, they're approaching Gimli, and they realize that they're a little too fast and a little too high. So mm. their options are, <laughs> you know, descend very quickly, but then you run the risk of crashing into the ground or landing too far down the runway and then going off the runway and crashing. Yeah. And they still don't know that there are people. No, there. they still don't know. They're, they're still trying to figure this out. And uh, wait, so, so they're communicating with the, the people on land control. They're, they're communicating the with Winnipeg. But Winnipeg doesn't know that they're right. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And this is like, you can't like Google it. Right. So it's this is like, 1983. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're not going to be no like, idea. Um, so the, since they're coming in too fast and too high, 
the, uh, the captain, Captain Pearson, decides to execute a maneuver called a, a forward slip. This is something you only do in light aircraft, maybe gliders. This is something you never do in a commercial jetliner. Uh-huh. So what a forward slip is, so you picture a plane flying, you know, you picture like you picture like a plane landing, right? Yeah. It comes in, you know, nose kind of, you know, the plane's pretty much aligned with the runway. Yeah. Comes in, lands, you know, the main landing gear touches yeah. and then the nose touches down. What he does is he points the nose off to the right and down and then uh-huh. tips the tail to the left and up. So the plane's almost kind of going sideways towards the runway. Oh, to sl- like to slow, slow it, down. it down, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's man. It's so because their their op- their other option is to try to do a three hundred sixty degree turn. Oh, okay, but, that sounds better. It sounds well, better. Well, they don't have enough altitude. Yeah, yeah. They would crash before they could do that. So he does this forward <laughs> this forward slip to try to turn the plane into the wind to uh-huh. reduce its speed. Yeah, yeah. I like they did them announcing to the passengers. Uh, hey guys, we're gonna we're just gonna circle the runway a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, no, just everyone. No one would be happy with that. So, um, so they're executing this forward slip, and you know, there's there's interesting firsthand accounts of people on the plane, you know, saying like they looked out the window and they can see like a golf course. Like they, they, they're not they're looking at the ground as hmm. the plane's coming in to, to land. So, um, you know, they they the captain successfully executes this forward slip, which is a very delicate maneuver since he doesn't have precise control because of the lack of hydraulics and you know no power from the engines and then you know they're nearing the runway and the people on the ground who are there for the race have no idea that this plane's coming because it's silent there's no noise from the engine there's nothing oh yeah it's not like you hear like right, you, don't, you don't hear anything <laughs> the plane doesn't have a horn yeah <laughs> he can't honk to let them know he's coming do they install horns after no this? there's no there's no horn. why would you ever need it <laughs> and in fact it's funny you say like you know the kids on kids running around and stuff there's two boys on bicycles on the runway, and uh, the the pilot says he can see these two kids on bikes on the runway, and that they're staring at the plane oh. in disbelief, and they get on their bikes, and they start trying to ride away from the plane to outrun it, to get out of the way, <laughs> but the plane's coming in at like 200 miles an hour, there's no way they can outrun it. Um and the the pilot so, says, so they they're like at the runway at this right. point. The pilot says he can see the look of terror in the boys' faces as they see the plane coming uh down to where they're at oh my god uh so the plane lands captain you know slams on the brakes uh which makes the plane skid and like i said the nose gear didn't fully lock so the nose you know starts scraping up against the ground the nose hits the runway and starts scraping the ground and the boys are out of the way which probably saved the boys because <laughs> 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 the plane immediately starts slowing down from this um you know the captain is worried about the boys he's you know trying to figure out whether or not he needs to try to steer the plane off to the side to avoid hitting uh hitting the man it's like one of those things it's like bad analogy but it's like when a squirrel or a dog or a cat comes out in front of your car and you're like oh shit i don't want but you're on a highway or something and if you swerve you'll hit someone else and kill who knows how many people that you don't want to run over the not that little boys or cats (laughs) or squirrels or anything like they're way you know but the idea of like do you screw over you know 200 people to save the two kids right and the captain was he says that he was fully prepared to steer the plane off into the off the runway to the side to try to uh save the children but you know like i said luckily the nose gear collapsed and the the plane also hits a guardrail that's there that's installed that creates more friction that slows the plane down more so you know they stop uh short of uh of, of hitting the children the children are able to get away uh, there's no serious injuries. The only in, the only injuries that happen that occur on this plane is because since the the nose of the plane is down, the tail is further up than normal. Uh-huh. So when they deploy the the escape slides, the slides at the back of the plane don't fully touch the ground. 
Uh-huh. Because it's higher than it should be. So some people hurt themselves getting out of the plane. But it's minor. Oh my, it's, it's, yeah. it's minor injuries. If you're on a plane crash and the and you're like, oh, man, I really got hurt. I tripped on the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. Scraped <laughs> my out, elbow. Coming off the slide. Yeah. Uh, so and then there was a small fire that started at the nose of the plane. But, you know, so they, they it, quickly extinguished that. So the landing was relatively, like, safe, right? They were just bumpy. Well, you know, Chris, like they say, uh, any landing you can walk away from is a good landing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, in fact... They fixed this plane at Gimli. They flew it over to Winnipeg for the rest of its repairs. And that plane continued to fly for 25 more years. They only retired that plane in 2008. Whoa. So, uh, I mean, that... I mean, it's a lucky plane then, I guess. In I would, a way. <laughs> lucky that they had the pilot and first officer that they yeah, had. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, well, the, the big question here that I'm sure you're wondering, yeah, yeah. Chris, is how does a plane run out of fuel? Halfway through a flight. Yeah. Okay, now before we hear what happened, let's hear a word from our sponsors. So we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? Uh, but here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. And now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. Uh, but don't worry, you can use ExpressVPN to binge, uh, for example, Doctor Who on UK Netflix. Uh, it's simple to do. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, Change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. You see, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Uh, you love anime? You can use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. Uh, there's hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason uh, I love ExpressVPN to watch shows is, is that it's ridiculously fast. There's uh, never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch uh, what you want on a personal device or on the big screen wherever you are. So all you got to do is visit our special link right now at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. You get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. You can support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Okay, I want to tell you guys uh, real fast here about Keeps. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. Uh, you used to have to go to a doctor's office for your hair loss prescription, but now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. Make it super easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Keeps treatment can take up to four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. You can find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for the hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatment starts at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first month for free. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, uh, just go to keeps.com slash blackboxdown to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash blackboxdown. And uh, you'll help support us and uh, take care of your hair. So go to keeps.com slash blackboxdown and receive your first month of treatment for free. So investigators show up and they're going to fi- they want to figure out, did, was there a leak? Yeah. Or where did the fuel go? Like it, everything should be fine. So like I said, this was one of the first 767s that uh, Air Canada had received. This one, particular one was four months old. Investigators first wanted to look and see if there's a leak. They say they can't find a leak. So wh- where, where can the problem be? So they discover in this particular plane that there's a problem with 
what's called the fuel quantity <laughs> indicator system, the FQIS. Okay. So it's responsible for calculating fuel load and indicating how much fuel is left in the tanks. So the equivalent would be, I had a friend who had a car where his, uh, my, uh, his fuel tank was always messed up so we never knew when he was on E mm -hmm. and he would just have to guess and he ran out of fuel all the time. Mm. So it's like that? Well, kind of. In this particular case, the fuel gauge was always showing E and the pilot was like, oh, don't worry, it's fine. Oh, so this was a known issue. Well, in this for this particular aircraft, yes, there was a problem. The fuel quantity indicator system was not working. That's two independent systems which cross-check each other and display how much fuel uh, is on the aircraft. But there was a problem. And uh, it wasn't working. So there was a, there was an engineer who was working on it. So one of the systems, like I said, it was two systems. One of the systems was down. The other one wasn't working. The mechanic who was working on the plane realized that he could pull the circuit breaker and reset it and that the system would start working. Wait, so when you say there's two systems. It's like a, a the they, they check each other. Okay. It's like for redundancy. Sake. Okay, so there's two just for redundancy. Right. One was down and the other one was iffy. Right, it was iffy. So... Um, so the service, the, the engineer, the mechanic left a, a, an indication in the log that it was broken and, you know, wrote down uh, what this the was fix like was. This was right before they... This was the day before. Okay. So the, this plane should not have been able to fly. No. Yeah, legally, this, this plane cannot fly. But uh, the pilot misunderstood what the problem was. And uh, because he, he thought that the plane had flown the previous day with this issue and that it was fine. That's not the case. He just misunderstood. It was a communication error that had happened. So... Um, it, I have a question about fueling mm -hmm. planes. It's not like in a car where you just kind of fill it up and, and you up. Oh, it's full. It clicked. Correct. It's how do you. So what you normally do is uh, you, you want to have there's a there's a, a burn rate for fuel. They know that if they're going to go this far, they need this much fuel in the plane. And they don't, they don't want to you don't want to top the tank up because then it's you're heavier. And right. It takes more fuel. Right. You're carrying fuel just to burn fuel. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird thing to think about. Right. That so you're like, well, you don't want to just fill it up. Because that wastes money. Right. Then you're taking more fuel. It'd be yeah. like putting a bunch of shit in your car all the time that, to carry around, with, like a bunch of weights. Yeah, you I don't did that, do that one time. <laughs> I had shit in my trunk for just literally weights for like a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. You're, and, I, you're, and I was you're, like... You're getting worse fuel <laughs> efficiency. So when the captain enters the cockpit, he notices the tag that the mechanic left and the blank fuel gauges. And uh, you know he checks his, his master minimum equipment list, which tells him... The plane is unserviceable in this condition, should not be flown. But since he thought the plane had been operating this way on the previous flight, he thought it was fine. But what they can do is when they're on the ground and they're fueling up, they can check it with float sticks. You know, they uh, like they put like a dipstick in the fuel tank okay. to measure it. And uh, so, you know, he, he thought it would be OK to, to fly with confirmation on those float sticks. OK, that, that wasn't the case, but. So when it says they're out of fuel and he's in the air, he's aware probably what happened at this point, right? It's not like, oh my, because he was the one who who had read the log and seen that the he, fuel yes. thing, he was like, oh shit. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're out of gas. <laughs> so it, it's kind of complicated. I'm, I'm going to dig a little more into one, a question you asked. You asked, uh, how do they fuel up? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, you know, planes have, they fly, they start, they get fueled on the ground. Mm -hmm. They go up to, in this case, 41,000 feet and pressure changes and temperature changes. It's much colder up above yeah. uh, at cruising altitude than it is down here. So uh, jets need to measure their fuel by weight because fluids can expand and contract under different pressures and different temperatures. Uh huh. The problem is fuel trucks, when they're on the ground, they don't dispense fuel by weight. They dispense fuel by volume. So like think of like a gallon. 
Yeah. They don't you like you go to the gas station, you put a gallon of gas in your car. Yeah, you don't you don't, p- you don't put eight pounds of gas <laughs> in your car. So imagine unless if, you're from England, in which case you're literally using eight pounds. <laughs> so so well imagine this. Imagine if it's it's it would be like you go to the gas station uh-huh. and you put the gas tank the gas pump tells you you put a gallon of gas in your car, then you get in your car and your car says you have six point eight pounds of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> so uh there 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 is some some math that needs to be yeah. done. So jet fuel weighs about 6.8 pounds per gallon. And uh-huh. for reference, water, I looked it up, water weighs 8.3 pounds per gallon. So jet okay. fuel is a little lighter uh, than water is. Okay, so what happened here is that Air Canada had made this decision that they wanted to move to the metric system. So they'd used the imperial system before. So this Boeing 767, they said, since we're this, starting with these planes, we're going to switch to metric. We're not going to use... And this was when? 1983. So the same, like right before this plane, right? Like this, this plane was brand new. They were just doing it. They they weren't going to do gallons anymore. They're going to do liters. They're not going to do pounds anymore. They're going to do kilograms. What happened here is that, like I said, the fuel truck fills the plane and measures in volume. So uh-huh. they were supposed to put in so many different gallons of fuel, but in this for this particular plane, they're using metric now, so they have to put liters in. <gasps> So they ended up putting the wrong amount in. So there's a, they have to do a bit of a, a bit of math. So they figure that to, in order to do the correct calculation, they multiply the number of liters by 0.8 kilograms per liter to get the mass of fuel. What they did, though, was they measured the amount of liters, then multiplied by 1.77 pounds per liter. So since they used this wrong conversion and mm-hmm. they used the 1.77 pounds per liter instead of the 0.8 kilograms per liter, they put in about half of what they thought they actually put in, which is why the plane was able to get about halfway through its journey. God. So, so this is a little besides the point. Do most planes, do they just fly till they're just about on empty? Uh, Tip, you know, like, are, or is, is it that close of a calculation? Well, well what will happen is they'll typically have enough fuel to go to their destination airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to a diversion airport if something happens. Okay. Which is why, like, you can circle, like, if there's bad weather, you can circle, circle, and then ultimately you might have to divert. So there's there's a buffer built in. Yeah, yeah. Just in case, you know, they, you're not able to land immediately. You need a circle or you need to go to a different airport. But it's it's not a huge uh, buffer. It's not enough It's not enough to go, yeah, it's yeah. not enough to come back yeah, to where yeah. you started from. Who was the guy filling up and doing that math? Was it just the fuel dude? The ground crew, yeah. So they have, uh, typically they'll have like a sheet with like uh, the math that they need to do, uh-huh. uh, you know, on on the truck. But in this case, since they were in the process of changing from uh, imperial to metric, they had two sheets. And I'm sure force of habit, they've been using the old system for uh-huh. so long. He just did the math on the old numbers, forgetting uh-huh. that this plane needs the new numbers, the new calculation. So uh, obviously, like I said, that's why they end up with about half of the fuel they need and they run out halfway through. If the FQIS had been working, they'd have been able to see, see like, oh, this isn't quite right. Things aren't adding up. If either of them had been. Right. But, and so w- w- the reset trick just didn't work? Oh, they, they didn't. They weren't fully aware because they're n- the, the mechanic is not able to write down. There's not enough space to write everything down. So what what do you he, mean he needs more paper? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's really small. So what he wrote down was, and, I'm, and it's abbreviated too. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out unabbreviated. Uh-huh. Service check, found fuel quantity indicator blank. Fuel quantity two, circuit breaker pulled and tagged. So this indicates that the second channel is inoperative, but it doesn't make the solution clear. He just says pulled and tagged to make it work? Yeah. 
Right. It's, it's like there's not maybe not enough information there. Uh huh. And that's it. Right. So they're just going off of word of mouth that from what they believe that it's fine. You can fly it this way. Uh huh. So the FQIS is inoperative. There's a bad math done when the plane is fueled and the plane ends up running out of fuel Man, halfway through everything its flight. wrong happening well, at once. Well, that's what happens typically in these in, whenever there's an incident with a plane is it's not just typically it's not just one thing goes wrong. It's there's a communication problem. There's the other mitigating factors that all come together to create the perfect yeah. storm that result in something like this. Because like you said, it's the, the safest form mm-hmm. of transportation. So there has to be more than one problem. Right. Just about. Yeah, typically, yes. When this is all said and done, the aircraft was uh, repaired, flown to Winnipeg, where they fully repaired it, returned to service. It flew for 25 years, you know, had a full uh, career. And following the investigation, the captain is actually demoted for six months, and the first officer was suspended for two weeks because they were blamed for allowing the incident to happen. I mean, and, uh, th- they and, and three maintenance workers were also suspended. Yeah, I mean, even though they did a kick-ass job of landing the plane and f- in responding to the emergency, it was still sort of yeah avoidable if they had just, I don't know, been a little more careful. <laughs> right, if there weren't these communication gaps. But actually, and then in 1985, the pilots were actually awarded the first ever uh, Federation Aeronautique Internationale Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship. Uh, because I guess after the incident, several other crews tried this exact scenario and simulator and all of them failed. Nobody was able to land a plane without a huh. without fuel from 41,000 so feet. So it's, you fucked up, but you did it with style. <laughs> but but you, you pulled it <laughs> off. Uh, then uh, six years later, the first officer was promoted to captain. And um, Captain Pearson remained with Air Canada for 10 more years. He eventually moved on to Asiana Airlines and retired in 1995. Uh, the first officer passed away uh, actually in September 2015 uh, at 68 years old. And uh, like I said, uh, in January 2008, you know, 25 years after the incident, the plane flew its last revenue flight. And uh, on January 24th, the Gimli Glider took its last flight from Montreal to Tucson and then flew to retirement in the Mojave Desert in California. And uh, the pilot and co-pilot were uh, passengers on that last flight. Oh. And, uh, and then, yeah, in July 2008, both pilots were celebrated with a parade in Gimli. They had a mural dedicated to their landing. And uh, in April 2013, the plane was actually offered for auction, but uh, remained unsold. And in 2014, the plane was scrapped. Oh. So it no longer exists. It's not like in Lord of the Rings where they sail, sail off into the west. <laughs> they did not fade not into that the dwarves west. Sell, you know, not that dwarves did that, but, you know, just in general. In the, general. So uh, that's why they, they call it the Gimli Glider, because it was Gimli Air Force Base, and the plane ran out of fuel, and uh, they had to, to glide in for a landing. Man. This is, I, th- I think, one of my favorite incidents. I'm glad we were doing our first episode on this one. Yeah. Because everyone survives. Yeah. Like, everything's it's fine. Like, yeah. It's like, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible scenario that through some miracle, everything, the, they had the right pilot, they had the right first officer, and uh, they were able to successfully land the plane. Despite the fact there was a, a race happening at the <laughs> at the runway where they diverted to, they didn't hit little boys on a bike. Yeah, man. But uh, yeah, so it's a uh, it's 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 really interesting, and uh, I'm I'm glad we started with this one. Yeah, my my final image though is gonna for Gimli Glider is not the plane, but Gimli the dwarf <laughs> on a little hang glider. With like, <laughs> with like Legolas behind yeah. him? Yeah, <laughs> maybe Legolas hanging out with him. And they're, sa- they're flying off into the sunset. I want to see some fan art. I want to <laughs> see some people drawing Chris's rendition of the Gimli Glider. Uh, all right, well, uh, that about wraps up this episode of Black Box Down. 
So if you know anybody uh, that might be interested in aviation incidents or that would uh, be interested in a podcast like this, make sure you let them know. Uh, make sure they subscribe on whatever platform that they consume podcasts on. Yeah. We're going to put this on all the different platforms. And give us a rating. Yeah, that's important. Yes. Lots of ratings. Tell your friends. Only, all that good stuff. Only if they're good ratings. Yes. <laughs> give us good ratings. <laughs> give us good ratings. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back uh, here real soon with another, with another aviation incident. Yes.